Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to start in Luke chapter 19 where we left off last week, but we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 20. So at the end of Luke 19, last week we looked at Jesus cleansing the temple and we're going to revisit that. Many of you may have read Homer's epic tale called The Odyssey. And in The Odyssey... Greek mythology plays a great role in Odysseus, the main character, and his travels and his voyages on the hazardous oceans. And and part of the story, Odyssey and his crew have to make a decision. They're going through this narrow strait. It's called the Straits of Messina. It's between the coast of Italy and the coast of Sicily. And as they go through this narrow strait, there's two mythological sea monsters on both sides. There's Scylla. Scylla is the mythical sea monster that is like a huge rock. It's a, it's, a five, it's a six-headed sea monster that juts out like a huge rock, and if they get too close, they'll crash into the rock. On the other side is the mythical sea monster Charybdis, and Charybdis is a violent whirlpool that if they get too close, they will be drowned and caught up in the whirlpool. So, Odysseus has to make a decision. Do we go towards Scylla and get crashed on the rocks, or do we go towards Charybdis and get caught in the whirlpool? In other words, it's the lesser of two evils. Which one do you choose? So Odysseus basically makes a decision. We're going to go towards Scylla because if I lose a few of the passengers, that's okay. But if I lose my whole crew in a whirlpool, that would be worse. So this whole idea has become a proverb. And I'm sure you've used this proverb all the time. When you're driving down Main Street and you have two choices, you, I know you say this to yourself. Man, I've got to choose between Scylla and Charybdis. I'm sure you say that all the time, don't you? No, we don't say that. Back then they said that. You may say something like this. Well, I found myself between a rock and a hard place. Or I've got to choose the lesser of two evils. Or maybe you've said something like, man, I've got to choose between the devil and the deep blue sea. Or you may say yourself, I'm on the horns of a dilemma. Whatever proverb you use, a rock at a hard place, the horns of a dilemma, Scylla and Charybdis, what we see before us in the passage of Scripture today is the religious leaders, when they ask Jesus a question, they find themselves on the horns of a dilemma. They find themselves between a rock and a hard place. They don't know which question to answer, which way to go, because they're in a no-win situation, because it comes down to the authority of Christ. So let's pick up last week where we left off. We're going to read it again. This is when Jesus cleansed the temple. So the very last part of Luke chapter 19, let's pick up in verse 45. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And Mark's gospel says a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. 
As he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. If you remember from last week when Jesus cleansed the temple, he focused on three things. He cleansed the temple and he said, there's a priority in missions. It's about going to the nations with the gospel, a priority of world missions. And then the second thing, he says, my house will be a house of prayer, a passion for prayer. And the third, he says, a purity of worship. You've made this a den of robbers. So missions, prayer, and worship. Now, what are the two responses that the people there engage with when Jesus cleanses the temple? Well, in verse 47, we see one response. As he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to do what? To destroy him. They wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to ruin Jesus. But the time had not come yet for him to go to the cross. So one response is seething hatred, rebellion. Now verse 48, we see the other response. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. They were listening with eagerness to what Jesus was teaching. They were, they were soaking up the Lord. They were, they were wanting to be there in the presence of Jesus. Now, if you had been there and seen Jesus do this radical action of cleansing the temple and then teaching on prayer and teaching on purity of worship and teaching about my house will be a, prayer, a, a house of prayer for all nations, how should you have responded? You should have responded with brokenness and repentance and sorrow because the Lord has exposed the sin in your heart. How should these men have responded? They should have responded in brokenness, but instead, they're plotting to kill Jesus. They act shamelessly. They act ruthlessly. They act maliciously. They're plotting his death. And so let's see what happens next as they try to trap Jesus. So let's go into chapter 20, and let's read this exchange between these men and Jesus. These men who didn't repent, these men who weren't, who weren't under conviction of what Jesus did in cleansing the temple, but they wanted to destroy him. So let's go into chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us. By what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Key word in this passage is the word authority. The authority of Jesus. And here's the question for all of us this morning. Do you joyfully submit to the authority of Christ? Do you submit to the authority of Jesus? So what I want us to do this morning is to see three truths 
that emerge from this encounter in the temple. And the first one I think is very, very important, and I don't want to just skip over it. Here's the first. Jesus placed a high priority on preaching the hope of the gospel to sinners. Jesus placed a high priority on preaching the hope of the gospel to sinners. Now, I want you to think about what's just gone on here. Symbolically, what has Jesus done? He's cleansed out the temple. He's gotten rid of the sin in the temple. And now what does he do? He comes and he teaches in the temple. And so what's happening here is Jesus has gotten rid of the sin and now he's filling the temple with himself as the true son of God. And what is he doing in the temple? Instead of the evil activity that's going on, it says there in verse 1, he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel preaching the gospel it's the greek word euangelizo we get our word evangelism from that he was evangelizing he was telling people about the hope they could have in the gospel that's how jesus began his ministry when jesus went to his hometown in nazareth right after his baptism what's the first thing that jesus begins preaching in his ministry all the way back in luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 The Spirit of the Lord, this is Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news. There's that same word, to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus was in God's house placing a high priority on preaching the gospel. So, if that was Jesus' priority, what should our priority be as well? We today, in God's house, should place a high priority on preaching the gospel the way that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, the early church in Acts modeled what Jesus did. The same two words that, that are used here that Luke describes, teaching and preaching the gospel in Acts 5.42. Every day, this is the early church, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. The early church made it a habit of proclaiming God's gospel. So I want you to think about something for a moment. You should never get tired of hearing the gospel. We need to be reminded every week when we come into this place of God's grace in the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. At His heart... The gospel is the historical facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the historical reality of the gospel. But what are the implications of the gospel? Why do we need to hear the gospel preached every week? And I'm talking about not just preaching salvation messages to get non-believers saved. I'm talking about we as believers in Jesus Christ need to constantly hear the gospel. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. If you want to experience the power of God, hang out in the gospel. Preach the gospel. Listen to the gospel. Colossians 1, 5 through 6. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth, which has come to you, this gospel. And indeed, in the whole world, it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it, the gospel, and understood the grace of God and truth. Is the gospel bearing fruit in your life? Is it growing? Is it increasing? And Paul writes to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 8-10, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel brings life. The gospel abolishes death. The gospel should be growing and increasing in your life. And what does Paul say about his ministry in Acts 20, 24? I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to do what? To testify to the gospel of grace of God. The gospel. You may say, sometimes Pastor Sean sounds like a broken record because all he talks about is the gospel. Amen and amen. We need it. We need to be reminded every week of God's grace in the gospel for wretched sinners such as us. We hear so many messages out there about how you can be a better person or how you can do this or how you can rise to this and this and this and this and this and it's all about you. When we come into this place, let's not let it be all about us. Let it be about Christ and what he's done for us and let's rest in his grace alone. I love that Jesus spent his time preaching the gospel. It was a high priority to him as he was in the temple, just about ready a few days later to go to the cross and accomplish the gospel in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that's the first thing we see is that Jesus placed a high priority on the preaching of the gospel. But here's the second thing. The second thing we see in this passage is sadly, many hate to submit to the authority of Jesus. Many hate it. They hate the authority of Christ. They don't want to submit to the authority of Christ. Now, Luke describes three groups of men. In verse 1, the chief priest, the scribes, the elders, these three groups of men. We will come back to these three groups of men because they're instrumental in the death of Jesus. They're called the Sanhedrin the ruling leaders, the ruling religious leaders in Israel, the Sanhedrin. And they want to destroy Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. Now think about what Jesus has been preaching. He's been preaching the good news. Are they receiving the good news? Do they realize that they're wretches that need salvation? Are they falling on their knees in repentance? Are they even hearing the good news that Jesus is preaching in the temple? No. They come and they ask a question. And the question they should have been thinking about is, instead of asking Jesus, by what authority did you do this? The question they should have been thinking is, wow, 
I wonder why Jesus cleansed the temple. What's the significance of this? How should I respond to this? How, how should I understand his right to do this? Why is he the only one worthy to do this? But instead, they come to him with the question. So what's the question? Verse 2. Tell us, Jesus... By what authority do you do these things? Now, we assume these things are the cleansing of the temple. It could refer to his teaching, his preaching, but probably in the immediate context, Jesus had just radically cleansed out the temple, and so they come to him, who gives you the right to do what you did? Who's given you the right? Who do you think you are? In other words, they were basically challenging the authority of Jesus. They wanted his credentials. Jesus, show us your credentials. Who gives you the right to do this? Now, Jesus has every right to do what he does because he's Jesus. He's the Son of God invested with all authority. Jesus doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. He's under no obligation to show his credentials or bring out his resume. Jesus does what he wants to do because he has that sovereign right. He doesn't have to ask permission to perform miracles. He doesn't have to ask permission to cast out demons. He doesn't even have to ask for permission to cleanse the temple. He can do it. Now, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, and maybe you don't realize this, but we've been in Luke for two years, and I just mapped it out. We'll probably finish around March. Just letting you know. As we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen some things about Jesus. Jesus, from the very beginning, has been invested with all authority. From the very beginning. What did the angel Gabriel announce to Mary right before Christ's birth? Even before Jesus was born. In Luke 1, 32-33, He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He's the king. He's the sovereign. Before he's even born, the announcement is that he's going to reign. Jesus had authority to teach and to cast out demons. You go all the way back to Luke chapter 4, verses 32 through 36. They were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you done with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Just stop right there. It's amazing to me that in the Gospel of Luke, the demons know who Jesus is before his disciples or anybody else does. They know who he is. He's the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had been thrown down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus has been showing his power and authority all along. He's casting out demons. He's teaching. He even has authority to forgive sins. Remember when they dropped the paralytic down through the roof? Luke 5, 24. But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Not just to heal, but to forgive sins. To cast out demons. To be the king. And then what did we see a few weeks ago? In the triumphal entry. Jesus has just come into Jerusalem on the colt. And what are they singing and praising Jesus for? Back in Luke 19... 
He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus doesn't answer their question. Jesus asks them a question. And he puts them on the horns of a dilemma. He puts them in a no-win situation. They're between a rock and a hard place. And Jesus goes right to the issue of John the Baptist. Now you may think, well, why does he address John the Baptist? That seems a little weird. Well, we must remember that John the Baptist plays a very unique role in the preparatory ministry of bringing the Messiah on the scene. Now, in verse 5, they discussed it with one another. That word, the original language, means that they, they had a cold, calculating discussion. They're in a pickle, no matter how they answer. So what's the question? Is the ministry of John the Baptist, was it from heaven? Was it God-ordained? Or was it just a mere man? Was he just a man that showed up and made up all these things? He claimed to be a prophet, but he really wasn't. So those are two choices that Jesus gives them. And they talk amongst themselves, and they say, oh, man, we're in a pickle. We have to choose between Scylla and Charybdis. We've got, we've got to make a hard choice here. So what's the first answer? Well, what do they say? If we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? <laughs> if we come out and say John's ministry was from heaven, then we're blatant hypocrites because we did not accept that message. We rejected that message. We didn't go out and get baptized by John. If you remember, what's the ministry of John? John's ministry was the ministry of baptism and repentance in preparation for the Messiah. So these Pharisees, these leaders, they didn't go out and get baptized. They didn't repent. They didn't receive John's message. As a matter of fact, Matthew says this. In Matthew 3, 7 through 8, but when he saw the many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You brood of vipers. And then in Luke chapter 7, 28 through 30, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, speaking of John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized. So if the Pharisees, the, the leaders here, come out and say, Oh, it was from heaven. It was a God thing. Then the people would say, Well, you hypocrites, why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you accept John's message? Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you receive John? Why were you so against him? If it was from God, then demonstrate it by saying it's from God and getting baptized. You hypocrites. Okay, what's the second question? Is it from man? Well, what's the horn of the dilemma here? Verse 6, if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John is a prophet. Well, here's the problem. We know John's popular, and all the people think he's a prophet. So if we just come out and say, well, it's not really from God, it's from man. It, he was a prophet that kind of made it up. It's a man-made thing. He's not really a prophet. Those people are going to be mad. Now, by this time, John the Baptist has been beheaded, but he's still popular in the minds of the people. They would have come against the Pharisees, and they would have feared for their life. Now, what did John the Baptist do as the prophet? What was his role as a prophet? He was a true prophet. 
Well, Zechariah prophesied in Luke 1, 76-77, You, child, this is talking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. The ministry of John the Baptist was prepare the way for, for the Lord, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then in John 1, 26-29, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward them and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Ultimately, John the Baptist's ministry was to point to Jesus. And these men, in rejecting John the Baptist, were rejecting Jesus. So they knew the answer. If we say it's from God, we're going to look stupid because we didn't get baptized and we didn't accept it. If we say it's from man, then they're going to hate us and they're going to come after us. So what do they do? Well, when you're between a rock and a hard place, what do you often do? Verse 7, they lied. Okay? <laughs> Verse 7, they answered they did not know where it came from they should have gone out and repented and been baptized under John the Baptist's ministry. They should have received Jesus as their Messiah right before their eyes. So they took the cowardly way out. They lied with malice. They knew exactly what they were doing. In their refusal to answer, they were lying. And listen to the wisdom of J.C. Ryle. He says this, Thousands will say anything rather than acknowledge themselves to be in the wrong. Lying is just one of the sins to which the human heart is most naturally inclined and one of the commonest sins in the world. We just lie. That's what we do. Now, why did they lie? It was because they were blinded. They had a hardness of heart. They were steeped in stubborn rebellion. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. They're blinded. They don't answer the right way because they don't want to answer the right way because they're blinded. They're darkened in their understanding, Ephesians 4, 18. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They had blind eyes and hard hearts. And not only that, they had a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2 says this, and I'm going to be reading this out of the NIV because it gives a little bit different imagery. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Think about a hot iron searing your conscience. So these men had blind eyes, hard hearts, and seared consciences. They lied because they did not want to submit to the authority of Christ. They'd rather dodge the truth than to let Jesus be in control. They shut the door to truth because they wanted to be in control. Now, some wise Pharisee or religious leader, when they were deliberating, should have said, now wait a minute, guys. 
what we really should do is we really should just come clean and submit. But not one of them did that when they were deliberating. Somebody should have remembered Psalm 143.10 and spoke up and said this. Psalm 143.10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you're my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Somebody should have set up and said, Holy Spirit, would you lead us to the right answer here and help us to submit to Jesus? But they didn't. They lied. And what does Jesus do? Jesus said, I'm not going to answer your question. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you guys are going to bold-faced lie to me, you don't even deserve an answer. Now, you see this in the Proverbs. Proverbs 9, 7 through 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Or Proverbs 26, 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Sometimes it's better just to let a fool speak and say, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to answer you. That's what Jesus does. You're not worthy of my answer. Now, that's the text. You see two things there. Jesus preached the gospel, but number two, sadly, many don't submit. Now, I want to take it to a third point. It's not in the text, but it's something that the Bible teaches. Here's the third point. As followers of Jesus, we should expect the same treatment. If you're going to follow Jesus and be a Christ follower, then you need to expect people to reject you, just like they rejected Jesus. Now you say, Pastor Sean, that doesn't give me a lot of encouragement. Let me give you some great encouragement from Jesus himself. Okay, this is in John 15, 18 through 19. You ready? This is Jesus. If the world hates you... Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, thanks, Jesus. Appreciate it. The world hates you, Christian, because it hates me. Why are people so adamantly against Christianity? They're taking it out on you, but really they're taking it out on Jesus. You're just the middle person. They take it out on the representative of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. So many people will reject the good news of the gospel. Many people will resist the message of salvation. Many people will refuse. And what does that do? That tempts us to do what? I'm just not going to open my mouth. I'm going to be silent. I'm not going to share. Sadly, here's what I think is happening in our world today. Many professing Christians today want the world's approval and not God's approval. We want to be liked by the world. I don't want to be labeled a bigot, I don't want to be labeled intolerance. So we don't boldly declare the gospel the way we should. We remain silent in fear. Let me just say this. If you wait until the world likes your message, you will never say anything. The world hates our message. So if you're waiting around for the world to accept us and to like us and to, and to, to accept what we're saying, you're going to be waiting until Christ comes back. Because the world hates our message. 
And the world wants us to silence our message. And the world wants us not to speak up. And so many Christians are living in fear because the world's placed that pressure upon us. Now, how do we respond to the hostility? The answer is not to be quiet and not say anything. Let me give you some wisdom from Colossians. Colossians 4, 2-6. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful with it in thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. It's a whole other sermon, but let me just give you a few things here. Be prayerful. Be wise. Be bold. Be gracious. And ultimately, rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do this. Because the resistance is going to come, and, and, and our temptation is to shut our mouths. When what we need to do is to be bold, be clear, but do it with grace. Do it with wisdom. Do it with compassion. Let me just say this. You can share that gospel without being a jerk. Now, there's a lot of jerks out there. But, but let me just say this. From experience, you can absolutely be bold and clear and do it with compassion and gentleness. Now, don't ask me how it's done because it's happened to me before. All I can say is, Holy Spirit, thank you. Because after it happened, I looked back and said, that didn't come from me, that came from the Holy Spirit. Have there been opportunities where you opened your mouth and afterwards you're like, now wait a minute, that wasn't me. No, it wasn't you. It was the Holy Spirit giving you power in that moment. So we need to be always relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to be bold, to be clear, but to do it with grace. And Peter says it this way, in 1 Peter 3, 15-16, in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Be prepared. Give a defense. But do it with gentleness and respect. Again, we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Whether you're an unsaved person that's resistant to the gospel or whether you've been saved for 50 years, we both need the same thing. What do we need? We need Jesus. We need to hear the gospel preached to us so that we can be reminded over and over again who Christ is and what he's done. Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing. What do you do each week when you come and sit under a sermon? You're hearing. And as you're hearing the gospel, God is birthing faith and strengthening your faith and, and giving you strength in the gospel. So we need to hear that gospel the way Jesus went into that temple and preached it to the people. So do you rest in God's grace 
alone, do you joyfully bow at his authority, or are you like the Pharisees here, that you harden your heart, you bristle at the thought of submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Jesus had every right to cleanse the temple. Jesus has every right to cleanse your life. Jesus had every right to stand and preach the gospel in the temple. Jesus has every right to come and give you the gospel in his death, burial, and resurrection. He has all authority. Where do we see his authority on display the most? In the cross. What did Jesus say about the cross and his authority? John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Never believe that Jesus was a victim of circumstance. In every aspect of the cross, he had ultimate authority. On the cross, he defeated sin. On the cross, he defeated Satan. On the cross, he defeated death. So where do you see Christ's authority? In the cross. Where else do you see Christ's authority? In his resurrection. In his resurrection. Ephesians 1, 19-21. What's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's a name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's our Christ right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 2, 13-15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it on the cross. And then here's what I love, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's demons and Satan, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We need to hear the victory of the gospel every week. We need to hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus every week. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let us thank Jesus for His authority. His authority to forgive sins. His authority to save us by His grace. His authority over sin, death, and the devil. His authority as the Lord of our lives. I can't get over what we saw last week. I want to go back to it. Look at verse 48. I did a little bit more research. All the people, remember last week, they were hanging on his words. Hanging on his words. Well, if you go back and you look at the literal translation, it literally says they were hanging on to Jesus. It's kind of a metaphor, but ultimately, they were holding on for dear life to Christ himself. They were holding on in faith. They were embracing, they were clinging to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So that's my question for us today. Are you hanging on to dear life to your Savior who has all authority? Because here's the bottom line. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus with all authority to be our Savior. Jesus, you defeated death, sin, and the devil on the cross with all authority. You rose from the grave with all authority. You disarmed the powers of darkness in your authority. You're seated at the right hand of the Father right now with all authority. And one day you will come back with all authority. The question, Jesus, is not whether you have authority. You have it. The question is, will we live under that authority or will we be the authorities in our life? Lord, help us to submit. Help us not to bristle at your right to do what you do because you have every right to do it. Help us to understand that we need to hear the gospel every week. We need to hear about your forgiveness. We need to hear about your grace. We need to hold on to you. Jesus, may we leave this place holding on to you and let us realize that you hold on to us way more tightly than we hold on to you. You never let us go. We're in your grip and nothing can, can snatch us out of your hands. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior with all authority. It's in your name that we pray this. Amen.